Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you're not there, Mark chapter 8. Greg Mallory was a famous mountain climber. And he was actually the first one, people believe, to be able to go to the summit of Mount Everest. They didn't really find that out until the 1990s. And they found his body up there because he actually died doing that. He was British and he was a British hero, they called him. But when he was 37 years old, he tried to go to the top of Mount Everest. And uh, they didn't know at the time. But again, like I said, they found out later on that he actually made it up there. And was so the first one. But uh, they, they, uh, they wrote articles about him, and people called him a national British hero, and he was very famous. Years later, his son, John, wrote about his father. His son, John, was three years old when his father passed away, and he wrote this. He said, I would so much rather have known my father than have grown up in the shadow of a legend or a hero as some people perceived him. I would have rather had a relationship with him than him be a hero. You know, it's interesting. The truth is the greatest gift a father could give his son is a relationship. Sometimes as men, we think that the greatest thing we can do is to be somebody, to be successful. But actually what each of us wants deep down as children, we want something more than that, right? We want a relationship. That's what God has designed for us to want and desire and to really need. Many, like I said this morning, the very beginning, many don't have fathers that provided that for them. Or, or, and all of us as fathers have fallen short, right? We've all fallen short in some ways. But God's gift he offers to us is the gift of a relationship with him. It's the gift of himself. When God created this world, he walked In the garden with Adam and Eve. The Bible says he walked in the cool of the day. That's a relationship. That's fellowship with God. And then sin came in and sin destroyed that. And there was separation. There was suffering. There was hardship. And Christ came to do what? To reconcile us to God. So we can have that relationship restored. And really the the pinnacle of time will be when time ends and God, the Bible says, comes in Revelation 21, and he dwells with man and woman. It dwells with people and, and continues that relationship, but in person. And so our lives as disciples are about living life in fellowship and relationship to God. That's really what life is all about. And you think about the disciples in Mark chapter 8 here. We're going to learn about the disciples and think about their life. They got to live with God. They got to see him eat and sleep and most importantly relate to his father in heaven. They got to see the Holy Trinity at work in relationship to each other and also how he really related to them and to other people. Really what Mark Eight outlines for us here is, I think, three simple components to our relationship with God. So if you open up your bulletin, you can see the outline there. We're actually only going to go through the first point today. So the next three weeks, we're going to look at three simple components of our relationship with the Lord. And it really, I'm going to sum it up in three different points. One is to know, know Christ. Number two is to Trust Christ. Number three is to follow Christ. Know who Christ is. Trust 
what Christ does and follow how Christ leads. So we're going to look today about knowing Christ. So Mark chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 27. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? I'm going to read Mark 27 down through verse 1 of chapter 9. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after has come with power. Let's pray. Father, we come to look into your holy word. Jesus, we want to understand who you are today very clearly so we can follow you by faith as your disciple. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you will open our minds and our spiritual eyes to see the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We've been studying through the gospel of Mark, and it seems that we meet a lot of people. Almost everyone we meet doesn't know truly who Jesus is. The crowds don't seem to understand. They are in spiritual darkness. The the Pharisees and religious leaders are blind leaders of the blind. Even the disciples lack spiritual understanding. Look back at Mark chapter 8, verse 21. We studied this two weeks ago. And Jesus asked his disciples, he says, are you disciples without understanding also? In other words, you guys have some type of spiritual blindness in your life as well. Everyone seems to be blind to who Jesus is. And that's why we studied two weeks ago, Mark 8, look down at verse 22, verse 26. We're not going to look at that today, but that's why Jesus then heals a man of his blindness. Remember, we said this was somewhat of an illustration Jesus was using, that he is the one who physically heals this man's blindness, but also he's the one who spiritually 
heals the blind heart. And we said he did it in two stages. And I believe he did it on purpose to show that he, yes, must give spiritual sight. But there's also this progressive spiritual sight that he must give us throughout our spiritual lives. And it's interesting. That's what you see right here in Luke chapter 8. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. You can see that down in verse number 28. He said, verse 29, he says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's gospel, he actually says a fuller statement. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said right after that? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father in heaven. And so what he's saying here is, you have said something that is true. Your spiritual eyes are opened. But does now Peter see everything clearly? Evidently not, because then he, when Jesus says plainly, I'm going to die and rise three days later, Peter goes, oh Lord, no, no, not you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he went from, having spiritual sight to not seeing something clearly. And the point is that God must give us this spiritual understanding to understand the truth. Jesus, our God, the Father, through the Holy Spirit, must help us to see who Jesus is. And so this morning, what I want you to see is the most important spiritual truth that God can open your eyes to is who Jesus is. It's who Jesus is. So the first component of a disciple's relationship with Jesus, I believe, is the most important. And that is you must know who Jesus Christ is. And so look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. The disciples are on a journey. They went with Jesus to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So they, they went from Galilee and they traveled about 25 miles north to this city called Caesarea Philippi. It was built by a man named Philip and it was, he did it in honor. He built the city or really refurbished the city uh, for Caesar. And this was again, generally a, a Gentile area. There were temples and, and idols to these temples in these temples and they worshiped false gods. But on the way to this place, Jesus began to talk to these men about who he was. In fact, in Luke, the parallel passage in Luke says they stopped at some point and they prayed. And so I want you to imagine they're on this 25-mile journey. First of all, what's that like to walk that journey? But then they stopped and Luke, this is what Luke 9, 18 says. It happened on their way that he stopped and he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. So at some point in this journey, Jesus gets alone and he's praying. I want you just to think about that. These disciples got to witness Jesus relating to his father. As I said earlier, they got to witness the the Holy Trinity relating to each other. That's pretty cool to think about, isn't it? But what an example that these disciples had. In fact, I thought about this probably years later as they thought back about their time with Jesus. These kind of times when he's praying with his father probably really stood out to them. Those were the times when Jesus cried out to his heavenly father. Now look look down at verse 27. On the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What's he asking here? He's saying, hey, what's the word on the street, guys? What are the crowds saying? The populations out there, what are they talking about? And Jesus isn't asking this because he doesn't know, right? He knows everything. Why is he asking this? 
because he's trying to teach them something. And I think he wanted them to process how people viewed him. He wanted them to process the various beliefs of those people who are coming to listen to him. What he really wanted to do is he wanted to say, okay, this is what is false. And some people have opinions about me and those opinions are false. But here is the truth. See, the, the reality is, is there's, there's people all around our world, and there are people that met Jesus at this time, and they came to conclusions about Jesus, and they had opinions about Jesus, and most of them were flat out wrong. In fact, you think about he's going to an area called Caesarea Philippi. It's an area that's filled with idolatry, and so if he's healing people, and he's doing miracles and casting out demons, people would have formed opinions about Jesus. Caesarea Philippi was, like I said, filled with mythical gods and temples. There was one temple that was built by um, Herod the Great. Now, do you remember the other temple that Herod the Great built? It was a temple in Jerusalem. So, so think about this. This is, this is somewhat of a pluralistic society because here's a Jewish Herod. This is the one that was the Herod during the time that Jesus was born. So here's the Herod that built a temple for the one true creator God in Jerusalem. But he also built for this mythical god, the god called Pan. He was a mythical god that was half goat, half man playing a flute. Anyone ever seen that? It's actually a pretty popular one out there. It kind of looks like his horns. It looks like a little demon or whatever. So as they're traveling north and they go into these villages, they might have seen maybe as they're traveling a cave. And maybe there was a little, uh, little god Pan in there. Because this was the god that oversaw the shepherds and nature and creation. And particularly their flocks. And so they would worship this god. And as they went into the city of Caesarea Philippi, there would have been a temple there to this god Pan. So here's people meeting Jesus. They would have formed opinions about Jesus. But their opinions, of course, unless they believed in Jesus, who he really was, were, were wrong. And then secondly, there was Jewish people that began to form opinions about Jesus. And that's represented in verse 28. When the disciples respond by saying, well, here's some people's view of you. There's some people that view you as John the Baptist and others as Elijah and others as one of the prophets. So, so there in verse 28, we hear the wrong view of Jesus. <clears throat> then verse 29, we hear the correct view of Jesus. What, what I want you to see there is three really, three false views of Jesus. Number one, were the people that were ignorant to the truth, right? They're the, the pagans that were around there that were worshiping false gods. Number two, there were people who viewed Jesus as something supernatural. And then number three, there were people who viewed him as just a human prophet. What's interesting is this is kind of the three views of people in our world today. You have people that are ignorant to the truth or, or they reject him completely. You have some people that believe that he's supernatural. There's something amazing about him, but they don't elevate him to God. You have some people that just view him as just a man. So look down in verse number 28. He says that the first view of him is that some people saw him as John the Baptist. And you're like, wait a second. Didn't John the Baptist get killed? So what happened here? Well, just real quick, flip back with me to Mark chapter 6. And again, you have Herod the Great. And then after him came Herod Antipas. And that was his son, and Herod Antipas actually was the one who killed John the Baptist. He had him beheaded. And he was afraid because when he heard about Jesus and his miracles, he thought that John the Baptist had been resurrected. So, I mean, I guess John the Baptist, he thought, grew a head back or something. And now he's walking around and doing these amazing things. If you look down in John chapter 6, verse 14, it says, King Herod heard of it, what Jesus was doing, for Jesus' name had become known. 
And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why these miracle, miraculous powers are at work in him. So evidently, there was this idea that Jesus was this supernatural, resurrected John the Baptist. Well, was Jesus supernatural? Did he do supernatural things? Absolutely. But what they did was they took something that was true about Jesus, and they mixed it with something that was not true about Jesus. Or how about this next one? Look down in verse 15. Others said, he's Elijah. That's a pretty important prophet right there. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But still, this is a demoted view of Jesus because then it just views him as a human, just a human prophet, maybe an important one, but not the prophet, not the Messiah. And see, here's the thing. People have opinions about Jesus. You can ask people on the street, who do you think Jesus is? Everybody has an opinion, pretty much. Even if they reject him, they have some kind of opinion. And, and generally, there's those three categories, their opinions can fit with them. But what Satan does, he takes little bits of truth about Jesus, and he mixes them with things that aren't true, with, with lies, and delivers that to people. In the end of the day, what they believe about Jesus is poisonous and is 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 wrong because it's not actually who Jesus is, and therefore it condemns that person to eternity separated from him. I'll just give you some examples. <clears throat> Almost every major religion in the world has some view of Jesus. Buddhism actually has a view on Jesus. Did you know this? They believe that he was a wise, enlightened man who taught similar things to Buddha. So that's what they say. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's a wise. Was Jesus a wise man? He was a wise man. But he was way more than a wise man because he said, I'm the son of man, which means he's saying, I'm the Daniel uh, son of man who is God himself. I am God. So he was way more than a man. He was way more than just some kind of Buddha that died, right? He actually was Jesus Christ who was resurrected from the dead. How about this? Christian science, they believe in Jesus. They believe he was a wise man, attuned to the divine Christ. Honestly, I don't know what all that means, except for the fact they don't have a correct view of Jesus either. How about Hinduism? They have different views of Jesus. One is that he was the reincarnation of uh, Krishna. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, but uh, some kind of wise man. So they say, oh yeah, he was, but he was a, he was a reincarnation of another wise man. Islam views him as a man. He, they say he's a true prophet. Do you know that? Islam says he's a true prophet of God. But when Muhammad came, he was superseded by Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses see him as an archangel. So they use words like he's the word of God, the son of God. But they demote him just being like some kind of angel. Mormonism sees him as a, 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 just a man who was as, you know, the god of this world. But they don't exalt him to his supreme authority that he truly has. Uni Unitarian Universalism, you know what that is? So if you go to like a college campus and there's a church, it's probably this one right there. Which basically they say, oh, he taught some moral things. Well, he did teach moral things, but he actually can't claim to be the one that was the lawgiver. So went way beyond just moral teaching. How about American Christianity? Like I said, you ask anyone, they believe in Jesus. A lot of people tell you they believe in Jesus by using him as a swear word. <laughs> it's like, oh, I know him, but actually I don't know him in that way. But, you know, the idea is that, yeah, a lot of people have opinions about Jesus in America, but most of their opinions are wrong. There's even a lot of churches like this kind of church, not our church, but churches, people meet in churches like this, and they have a wrong view of Jesus. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if, if I accept Jesus in my life, he'll give me more money, and he'll take away all my problems, and he'll heal all my sicknesses. And so they come to churches like this saying, God, give me, give me, give me, 
thinking that's who Jesus is, and that's not who Jesus is. He definitely will in the next life to come. You'll be able to live with him and dwell with him in his presence and worship him. But the idea that this world is all about you and about he's some kind of good luck charm and he's going to, you know, make your life on earth some happy paradise is not the true Jesus. In other words, people have opinions on who they think Jesus is. Here's the question. The question is not what's your opinion on Jesus. The question is not who do you think he is? You know, what do you think? Who do you think Jesus is? The question is, who is Jesus in reality? Like, who is he? All these opinions. That's kind of like, oh, what's the, what's the truth? And I will say this. We find the truth where? In God's word. I mean, Jesus is the word of God. So let's go to his word. Let's see what he says about himself. So if you look down in verse, go back to um, Mark chapter 8. Look down in verse 29. He asked them, that's the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as a spokesperson, responds, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Like I said earlier, the key component of a disciple's relationship with Jesus is to know him truly, to know who he truly is. And who does Peter say Jesus is? You're the Christ. The Christ is speaking about the fact that he's the Messiah. He's the promised king of Israel. And again, like I said earlier, in the parallel passage of Matthew 16, what's the fuller statement that Jesus, uh, that Peter says? He says, you are the Christ. And Mark doesn't add this, but Peter does, or uh, Matthew later on says that uh, this was the fuller statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, it's interesting if you look back, you don't need to do that. But if you look back at Mark chapter one, verse one, how did Mark start off this book? He said, this is the gospel. This is the good news of what? Of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Those three terms, you see them over and over and over in the scriptures. Or sometimes you see it, Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Lord has the idea that he's God. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So you say, you see that he's Jesus. Jesus speaks the fact that he's the Savior, right? That was the name given to him because he's going to save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. So we think about Jesus, we think he came to take away our sins. When we think about the fact that he's the Messiah, Christ, he's the king. He's the promised king. He's the one that will rule and reign on this earth. And he's the one that should rule and reign over your hearts. And also he's God. He's the son of God, the living son, the son of the living God, which speaks to the fact that he is in essence one with the father. So this is who he is. That's the reality. This is what the scriptures teach about us. So we must know who he truly is, but we also must know him personally. Look down at verse 29. Notice how Jesus asks this question of his disciples. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? Think about how personal that is. All these people have all these opinions, but I'm actually wanting to know what, not just your, what your opinion is. I want you to know, what do you believe about me? What do you believe about me? It's not like Jesus is saying, here's a test, you know, fill the test. If you get the answers right, congratulations, you get eternal life. That's not what he's doing here. He's not asking them to just, what's the intellectual truth about me? Is it important to actually know the truth? Absolutely. But Jesus is going a step beyond here. He's saying, what what do you personally believe about me? You guys have been with me for two and a half years. 
Like, do you really know me? Do you really know me? And of course, Peter says, yes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And see, there's a difference between just just informational knowledge of Jesus and personal knowledge of Jesus. When I was, uh, let me illustrate it this way. When I was in eighth grade, I don't know if I told the story or not. Have I told the story? I probably should ask my wife ahead of time. When I was in eighth grade, I remember being in a science lab downstairs in the basement of our school. And there was, the boys were in the science lab over here. And across the hall, the girls were in the science lab over on their side of the hall. And I remember this group of girls came over and they were as an eighth grade. So they're all giggly, <laughs> you know, coming over and they came into our room and I'm sitting in this chair and I'm supposed to be doing work on my science. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by girls, which any eighth grade guy's like, hey, this is pretty cool, right? Doesn't happen every day. And well, and they actually seemed like they liked me at that moment. And so under their arms, you know, they had tucked this book. It was called Sweet Valley High. Anyone ever heard that book? Yeah, don't read it. It was a 1990s thing. And if you're a 1990s girl, you probably heard of it. Anyways, not recommending it. That's for certain. Who would ever thought that I'd move out to the place where it's, it's talking about? Anyways, that's another story. These girls look at me and they say, you know, hey, Ben, there's a girl in the other room. You know her. And she, they said her name. They said, she kind of likes you. Do you like her? And they had this piece of paper. And I can't remember what it said. It might have said, like, check yes, check no. I don't really know. But it was like they had this piece of paper. And I was supposed to write on it and check whatever it was that I was supposed to say that I liked her. And I was like, yeah, I do kind of like her. So I checked that box, you know. And they, ah, and they went over there. And they had her, you know, look at it. And, you know, and so all of a sudden, boom, I had a girlfriend. (laughs) Big problem, I'm not allowed to have a girlfriend. Well, I used to have blonde hair. So I was a little more blonde back then. I didn't really catch that until I was on my way home and someone in the car, uh, one of my neighbors were driving us home and someone in the car, one of our neighbors said to me, um, do you have a girlfriend? And it hit me, uh-oh, words out. And you know what that means? When I get home, I'm probably going to be asked about it. So I was thinking, oh, I got to scramble. So I was like, well, not, not tomorrow I won't have a girlfriend anymore. So sure enough, I went back to the school the next morning and I, right away I V-lined it for those girls and we're like, hey, I, this has got to be done. I can't have a girlfriend. So tell... You know, I like get a note together, write it and say that I'm breaking up with her. So sure enough, that's what happened. I broke up with her and, and it was interesting because they said, you know, these kind of phrases that I found out later were from this book is like, you used her, you know, you're just, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just an eighth grade kid that didn't have a clue, but you know, what's interesting is I didn't have a personal relationship with her did I? Like, I did that for status. I did it because I was kind of pressured into it a little bit, you know. And also, I, it was, I was an important person in that moment. And so it was like, that was kind of cool. But at the end of the day, I really didn't want a relationship, if you want to say it that way, right? I actually think that's where a lot of Christians are. Like, a lot of Christians come to church, and they're not coming because they really have a relationship with God. It's, like, it's a status thing, or, or it's maybe what they're expected to do. Or maybe they grew up as a Christian. And so it's like, well, that's, that's what I grew up knowing that I was supposed to do, or that's what my parents want me to do. And they come to church and go through the routine of, uh, if you want to call it the Christian life, and they do it because that's what they're expected, not because they have a genuine relationship. And, and that's actually different than when I went to college and I was sitting in a music, pre- music appreciation class, and there's this brown-headed, brown-eyed girl named Dana, and I was like, she looks kind of nice. And actually, I wanted to get to know her, and you know why? Because I thought if I got to know her, in a relational way that actually be joyful, be delightful. It'd be, in, I would have a lot of fun. And so I entered into a relationship with her, although I got rejected for a while, but eventually, 
eventually we enter into a relationship. My point is, you see the difference? And God wants us to enter into a personal relationship with him. And Jesus extends to us this relationship based upon truly, but also personally knowing him. We must know that he is Jesus. We must know that he is Christ. We must know he is God. But the question is, is that personal to you? You might say, well, what does that mean? In other words, when you think about who he is, how does that affect your life? Like, how does the fact that he is the Savior affect your marriage? How does the fact that he's the king affect how you operate at school or at work or your viewing habits? How does the fact that he's your God affect your delights and how you deal with stress? I guess I think about it like this. If Jesus is truly your savior, like how do you respond when you sin? So maybe this past week, maybe you got mad at your employee or your employer, or maybe you got upset at your spouse or your parents or your siblings, okay? What did you do after that? What did you do after that? Right? If you're like, oh, they're such an annoying person. It's not my fault, you know? Okay, so you excuse your sin. Or you blame it. Like, in other words, you're saying, I don't have a need for a savior. I'm okay and how I am. Oh, so are you actually personally believing that Jesus is your savior? No, if you can walk away from that and not, not feel guilty about something you've done that's wrong, if you've sinned, and you can walk away from that? Now, are you trusting that Jesus is actually your savior on a daily basis? Or you might have something that happens, like maybe you blow up and, and slam the door and you, you know, exit the house and then you get, you know, feel guilty about it. So you come back and you're like, well, I'll buy, I'll buy flowers for her. Or I'll, I'll get a gift for this person or whatever. And you try to be your own savior. Right? Or I'll go to church this Sunday because I, I know I really messed up this week. So the point is, how are you thinking about your sin? Or are you going to the Lord saying, Jesus, I really messed up. I have sinned against you. And I believe you are the only one who can truly forgive me. And so I come to you and I say, will you forgive me, Lord? And I want to turn and trust in you. Or, or just even thinking about the fact that he is the king. He is the Messiah. So does that idea rule your life? Like, does the idea that he's the king, does he actually rule every part of your life? And so as you're making plans, I mean, you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to make this plan until I make sure that I bring it before the Lord. Or I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. I wonder what God's word says about this. Or I'm in this relationship with this guy or this girl. And you know what? Sometimes people are critical about how we interact. Maybe I should see what God's word says about that. Like, I want him to rule my life. Or, or even the fact that he's God. When we sing about him, Jesus, thank you. Are you thinking, Lord, God, Jesus, you're God. I worship you. See, the point is, it's not just intellectual, right? It's got to be personal. And so Jesus asked them, what do you guys believe? What do you believe? John 20, 31 says, these, that's the scriptures, are written that you may believe, not just informationally, but you might rest your life. You might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the scriptures are written so you can believe in those three things about Jesus, that he's your Savior, believe that he is the promised Messiah, the King of your life, and he's God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so it's real, it's personal, but also it's got to be supernatural. It's a supernatural work. Remember, we said earlier, how did Peter know 
this about Jesus. How did he know he was the Christ, the son of the living God? How did he know that? Well, the Bible says, Jesus said that it's not because someone else revealed it to you. It's because your father in heaven revealed it to you. In other words, this is a spiritual work that Jesus did in his life. If you want to know Jesus, it actually must take place as God does a spiritual work in your heart. And that's kind of the point of this passage. It kind of leads up to this. Here, all these people are spiritually blind. They can't see. Even the disciples are kind of like, oh, I don't really understand what's going on. Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. And then Peter, Peter, now you can see. And so it's got to be something spiritually uh, supernatural that God does in your heart. And also, you must know Jesus in a true, personal, supernatural, and lastly, a practical way, a very practical way. At what point did, did Peter kind of clue in that this is who Jesus was? What do you think? Honestly, I don't know. It doesn't say like, and then the light turned on for Peter on this date, you know? Actually, I think what happened to Peter is probably what actually happens generally and how God works generally. And that is that as Peter spent time with Jesus, as he listened to Jesus teach, as he saw what Jesus did, he realized, I think this guy is the Messiah. I think he is the son of God. The point is, is that God revealed himself to Peter as Peter sought him. You know, remember Peter and the disciples, they left everything they had. I mean, every day that Peter's out with Jesus is a day he's not back with his wife. The way, and if he had children, day he's not back with his children. I mean, he left his business. He left, his, he left everything because he believed that this was true about Jesus. And he wanted to follow him and he was seeking the Lord. And as he did that, God revealed himself to him. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me, that's God, and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, it must be this passionate pursuit of the Lord. I've had many times where I'm sitting in counseling with people and you talk about all the intellectual ideas of who Jesus is. What does the Bible say? And it's like, what do you do now with it? And, you know, there's this component that's a part of life that's not that goes beyond just knowing the truth and just praying a short little prayer. There's this component that comes before the Lord and says, Lord, I don't know what to do except cry out to you. And I'm coming to you now. And that's the component you see here. It's like as they spent time with Jesus and pursued him, God revealed himself to them. And of course, that for us is found as we look in the word of God. And so knowing Jesus is very very practical. Of course, you think about it. There was 11 disciples who were pursuing the Lord and followed him. And there was one who faked it the whole time. Judas, right? I was thinking through this and as what's Judas thinking when he hears all this stuff? You know, the reality is is that you can be in here and you can go into the motions like Judas did, right? You can, you can say, I believe all these things about Jesus, but you can fake it, right? That's what Judas did. And some of you, maybe, maybe you feel distant from the Lord. I mean, you're like, I don't know. This, I had a really rough week. And some of that, I just don't feel close to God right now. Well, I guess I would say this. It's not God's fault. The Bible says, draw near to God. And what? He will draw near to you. Like, you have to pursue him. That's a principle in the scriptures. If you want to grow closer to the Lord, you have to spend time with him. You have to know him. Know him. And that's found as we go before him in prayer and through the scriptures. Would you just end with 
me by going to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, and I kind of messed up the scripture reading this morning. Sorry, Ken, I gave you the wrong chapter, but it was a good, good chapter to read. <laughs> but this is where we were going to end. Uh, this is where we're going to end today, Second Peter chapter 1. You know, it's interesting, if you think about the gospel of Mark, that's Peter's gospel written by his apprentice, Mark. And so if this was something that was important to, to Peter, he, of course, had it written in by his apprentice in the gospel of Mark. But if it's important in this gospel, you probably would see it in his, his epistles as well, right? And so Peter wrote two epistles, first and second Peter is what we call them. So second Peter chapter one is very interesting because you can see this emphasis that Peter places on knowing Jesus Christ. Look at second Peter chapter one, verse two. He says, may grace and peace. This is Peter writing. May grace, it's God's work in you and peace from God be multiplied to you. And notice this word in the knowledge, the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So grace and peace flow from this, this knowledge, this relationship. In verse three. His divine power, that's the divine power of Christ, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of him. Who's the him? That's Jesus Christ. So there's this supernatural power that God gives us for everything we need in life. Like you have everything you need to live this life in a godly way that's living it in the way that God wants you to live, worship of him, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's a power that's there. Now, sometimes people, you know, think about their life and they think about some of the problems in their life and they respond with saying, well, I, I don't think I have everything I need in life and so I need, I need an answer for, for, for some of these problems I have in life. And so they turn to drugs, they turn to more media, or they, they say, I need a new environment. In other words, as humans, we try to figure out, like, how can I fix my life? How can I have, have my, my problems solved in life? And so we go to this person and that person for advice or whatever, and, or we go to this substance or whatever, and we try to... But what does it say here? Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have all things that you need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And where do we find the knowledge of Jesus Christ again? In the scriptures. It's where it talks about Jesus. So when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's, it's intricately connected with the holy word of God. In fact, keep going down to verse four. Look in verse four. It continues on. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's found in the word of God through the person of Jesus, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. So God actually changes your nature, having escaped the corruption that is in uh, the world because of sinful desires. So the supernatural knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing him, relating to him, actually can change your life, can change your life. So it's very practical. It's, it's personal. It's practical. It's supernatural. So that's how he introduces his letter. Go to the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. Or 2 Peter, I'm sorry. 2 Peter chapter 3. He introduces it by saying, you must know Jesus. And he kind of talks about that throughout the book here. And then at the end of his epistle, in 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow 
in grace and in knowledge. There it is, the same word, in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, notice all that. Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Did Peter have it all figured out at Caesarea Philippi? Absolutely not. You know what's interesting? At the very end of his life, after this epistle, he dies. Did he have it figured out here? Absolutely not. Like, you, you never stop growing in your relationship with the Lord. There's never a time where you say, well, I don't need to know anymore. I don't need to pursue him anymore. No, it's a continual pursuit in our life. And the prayer that Peter has is, church, grow. Grow this week. Grow in, your, in the grace of God. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers said this. He wrote this. The destiny of every human being depends on his relationship to Jesus Christ. And it's not on his relationship to life or his service or his usefulness, but simply and solely on his relationship to Jesus Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what is your relationship with Jesus Christ right now? Like, do you truly know him? And Christians, are we truly growing in the knowledge of Jesus? Are we growing in the knowledge of Jesus? And things like this, messages like this, hopefully call people who don't know Christ to Christ. Like, come and know our blessed Savior who loves you and died for you. But also for us Christians, it shouldn't be really make us feel guilty. It really should give us a sense of, let's look forward to something this week. Like, if you had a lot, bad week last week, you had a difficult week last week, that's okay. Trust the Lord this week. Trust he's your Savior. He's your King. He's your Lord. He loves you. And, and meet with him this week. Meet with him. Know him. Grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We are so thankful, Lord. So thankful that we can actually talk to you and we believe and we are certain that you hear us. Because you love us. Because you have reconciled us to you. And each one of us in here who has the spirit of God, we feel that in our hearts. It's something we know, but it's also something that is really just deep down within us. We know that we are your children and we're so thankful for that. And there's times when life is is difficult. And I I know some of us in here have talked about some of the struggles that we're going through and the difficulties. and, And those are hard. But God, in the end of the day, we have you. That's the greatest gift of all. And I think about maybe there's a person in here and they just feel lost in life. Maybe they're in here this morning and they think, I don't know what you're talking about. Or, I don't have that. Or I feel empty. Oh, oh Lord, may they find that, that joy and that forgiveness and that wholeness in Christ. I pray that the, that the divine power of Jesus Christ will, will transform them as they repent and believe the gospel. And I pray for us as a church. There's, there's nothing more important in our life than our relationship with you. And maybe some of us in here need to reprioritize our life. Maybe we need to just set aside a time this week where we just we spend an extended period of time talking to you, our Father, reading your word, relating to you. God, give us this week a close, personal intimate fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen.